Can you imagine what it must have been like for the mother of Jesus during the last week of his life? Everything that we know about Mary would have put Mary in Jerusalem that week that Jesus, along with all of the other worshipers, had come from Galilee and all the other regions to descend upon Jerusalem so that they might ascend the Temple Mount. And everything that we know about the life of Mary and the history of Mary would suggest that Mary would have been right there. And listen, being a preacher and having a mama of a preacher, let me tell you what mamas of preachers do. If they're in town, they're going to be there, okay? And so Mary would have been there. She would have watched as Jesus taught, and she would have watched as Jesus would have flipped over the tables. She would have been there as news of Jesus would have spread across Judea like an earthquake, shaking the very foundations. She would have known that the temple leaders were not happy with him. She would have witnessed Jesus calling condemnation and judgment upon them. She would have witnessed the Pharisees and the Herodians coming and attempting this smear campaign and trying to pin Jesus down. (coughs) She would have seen all of these things. Now, my mom still gets nervous when I preach today and when I go in for a physical, okay? So, So you can imagine, you can imagine, Mary, in this setting, in this day. Now, you remember that that she probably made this journey from Galilee to Jerusalem dozens and dozens of times over the course of her life and dozens of times with all of her children because we know that Jesus wasn't an only child. And so most likely this was a very sentimental trip for her, wasn't it? You can imagine now in adulthood as she or as a as an older adult and with her children in adulthood as she would have made that and heard all of them singing the Hallel songs and singing the Psalms of Ascent, the Psalms of Ascent as they were preparing to ascend the Temple Mount. You can imagine that her mind going back in time, because that's what we do, isn't it? Holding her children's hands, perhaps holding Jesus' hand as she watches him teach there in the temple complex. Her her mind might have went to that day when he was just a 12-year-old and he went missing, you remember? They couldn't find him anywhere. He was there sitting in the temple. He says, where did you expect me to be? But in my father's house. Maybe her mind went back to hearing those sweet little precious voices. Maybe the very voice of Jesus singing those psalms, singing those praises to her heavenly Father. She loved this journey. She loved this walk, but she would have known. She would have known that this trip was different. This this walk to the temple was different. This atmosphere was toxic. (coughs) This was going to be Jesus' last. So imagine her. This is Tuesday. On Friday, she will watch him be crucified, sitting at the feet of the cross. Shame, not just brought upon him, but the entirety of her family. Can you imagine the pins and the needles, the nerves, the worry, the concern that would have been on this mother? This is the setting that we step into again in Matthew chapter 22. 
This is where we come into, as Jesus is on this final walk, these final days as he prepares to go to Calvary, as he prepares to go to Golgotha. They have already turned against him and are intent upon bringing arrest and ultimate execution into his life. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. When you get there, would you stand with me? We're going to be in Matthew chapter 22. We're going to begin in verse 23 together. Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 23, God's word says, The same day Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. So if you'll remember where we are, the leaders of Jerusalem, the the leaders of of Israel, they want to take Jesus down, but they have a problem. The problem that they have is that the crowd still believes that Jesus is a prophet from God. Jesus is still quite popular with the crowd. They have watched as Jesus has performed great miracles. They have watched as Jesus has acted with great compassion. They have listened as Jesus has taught with with an authority that is extraordinary, supernatural, beyond human ability. And so the crowd sees Jesus and has witnessed Jesus, has listened to Jesus, and they they believe that Jesus is a prophet of God. And so the, the leaders of Israel don't want to turn the crowd against themselves because they don't want to be overthrown. And so what they have to figure out is they have to figure out how are we going to turn the crowd against Jesus? How are we going to change Jesus' approval ratings? How are we going to change Jesus' popularity without hurting our own? How are we going to damage Christ without damaging us so that we can ultimately have him arrested, have him executed, do away with our problem, and move on with business as usual. Move on with life as we want. So they've initiated this smear campaign. And what we've seen is over the course of this thing is is kind of made some strange alliances. Last week, we saw an alliance between the the Pharisees and the Herodians who really don't like each other. As a matter of fact, they hate each other. And this week, we're introduced to a third group of people, a group of people called the Sadducees. There's a couple of different times in which the Sadducees and the Pharisees kind of tag team against Jesus. But what you need to understand about the Pharisees and the Sadducees is just like the Pharisees and the Herodians, the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't like each other either. 
They didn't get along with one another either. As a matter of fact, the Sadducees didn't like the Herodians or the Pharisees. And so they're all in this strange alliance with one another because they all have a common enemy. They have a common enemy. They all have a common hatred for Jesus. They all want to make sure that they do away with this prophet from Nazareth, this prophet from Galilee. They've got to get rid of him. And so they so hate him, they're willing to put aside their very profound political and theological differences to come together in an alliance to have a smear campaign against Jesus so that then they can resume their differences with one another once Jesus is out of the picture. So in the day of Jesus, or in in Israel... The way that Israel was ruled in Israel proper, obviously this is under the umbrella of the Roman Empire, but the primary way that Israel was ruled was by a council called the Sanhedrin, a council of elders called the Sanhedrin. And if you think about it, they kind of had like two political parties, somewhat, not, not, it's not a direct translation, but a way for us to kind of think about it. They kind of had these two political parties in the Sanhedrin with one another. And we might think of the Pharisees and the Sadducees as these two political parties. Now, the Pharisees would have been the more conservative party. They held very strictly to the law of Moses. They held very strictly to the word of God. They had a very literal translation of the law of God, of the word of God. In fact, they saw themselves as being such protectors of God's law, such defenders of God's law, that they would invent brand new laws just to build around the law of God to protect it. They, though, had a very literal view when it came to the, very, the supernatural events about God. So when, God, when the Bible said that God did something supernatural, they believed it. They took it at face value. If it said he parted the Red Sea, they believed that he parted the Red Sea. If it said that they marched around Jericho seven times and the walls fell, the Pharisees believed that they marched around Jericho seven times and the walls fell down. Like They took that type of interpretation of the law. They also believed that the entirety of the Old Testament canon was in fact the word of God, the divinely inspired Word of God. The Sadducees, and it's important to realize this was the minority party, okay? We hear a lot from the Pharisees because that's kind of the the main point of conflict with Jesus in in the Gospels. But the Pharisees were the minority party. And they had the minority view even among the majority of Israelites, of the common Israelites. But they were the minority party even within the Sanhedrin. The majority party and the majority view among the majority of the people in Israel would have been that of the Sadducees, and they would have been what we would have considered the more liberal perspective. So they did not take the entirety of the Old Testament as being the word, divinely inspired word of God. So they would not have held all of the prophets, the Psalms, the Proverbs as being in full authority as they would have the first five books of the Bible. They upheld the books of Moses, the Torah, the Pentateuch, those first five books that, we ha- that you have in your Old Testament, they held firmly to those books. And they kind of held loosely to the others. They thought the others were loosely helpful, but also frequently wrong, right? Now, the other thing about them is they dismissed practically everything supernatural. They were anti-supernaturals. Y'all, that ain't a new thing. We think that's all new and, and relative to our age. That's not a new thing. The Sadducees held that view. And in fact, the Sadducees did not believe that there was any afterlife. 
They didn't believe there was any resurrection. They didn't believe there was any afterlife. They had a very distant view of God, a very cold view of God. They would have had, you know what a deist is? They would have had a view of God that was very similar to that of a deist, that God is like a clockmaker, and that God wound this, built this clock and wound it up and then just let it tick and just kind of stands back and watches it go. And so this was the Sadducees. This is their view on kind of how everything is. Fun. And remember, this is how the majority of the people are probably thinking in Jesus' day. A lot of the people in the crowds that Jesus is preaching to are thinking and are in alignment with the views of the Sadducees. And so they've been thinking up a question themselves. Probably it's not an original question to them. You know how every view kind of has their go-to questions? Every, every, every point of view, every philosophy, every position kind of has their go-to questions that's intended, like if you're in a debate with them, they ask this question and it shuts down the debate. I have a feeling that this was a question like this. And it's very likely that over the course of Jesus' ministry, as Jesus was talking about the afterlife and Jesus was talking about angels, they didn't believe, the Sadducees didn't believe in angels. As, they were ta- as he was talking about angels, he's talking about the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about the kingdom of God, he's talking about the resurrection. As Jesus is talking about all of these things, that there's this underlying question, this elephant in the room, but what about this? What about this? And so they come to Jesus with a hypothetical. Now, in my position especially when I was a youth pastor, but still now, I get asked a lot of hypotheticals, right? I get asked a lot of hypotheticals. Okay, but what if, you know, and I always know when somebody says, yeah, but what if, I know, man, it's coming, all right? It's coming. They're coming way out of left field. They're swinging for the fences, man. They're going to come up with something crazy, and it's intended to throw me off either with its logic or with its absurdity, one of the two, you know? And that's kind of the thing here, right? And so what they're going to do is they're going to take Jesus' logic about the resurrection. And they're going to carry that logic in their own minds to its furthest end. This is something that you do in a debate. They're going to take its logic and they're going to carry it to its furthest end, to its most absurd end. And by carrying it to its most absurd end, their aim is to show the crowd that this man is a fool. That this man is a fool. Fool, that you want to listen to a guy that believes this? That, that you're going to all gather around and believe that a prophet of God would believe something as dumb as that? Okay. Okay. So this is intended to undermine Jesus' ministry, to, to highlight Jesus as being a false prophet, as being a false teacher. So here's the hypothetical. They go to Deuteronomy chapter 25. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, it says that if a man dies before his wife has given birth to an heir, that it's his brother's responsibility to marry his wife and produce an heir, or, or to marry his wife and to have a child, to have children with her, to have offspring with her. And the purpose for this is twofold. One is to provide for his wife, to take care of his wife. This was in a day in which a woman was not able to be a breadwinner, was not able to provide for herself. There was not economic opportunities for her. And so it was, there was a provision within the law of Moses to make sure that she was provided for. But the second reason was, is it was to perpetuate the man's legacy, to perpetuate the family name, to perpetuate the inheritance of the man. Now, for the Sadducees, this is how they understand 
the word resurrection. As a matter of fact, when they're talking about this, they even use the same root word in the Greek. You can't really see it, but they even use the same root word as resurrection when they're telling this because this is how they understand afterlife. What they understand the afterlife to be is they understand that when you die, you just die, you just go away, you just turn to dust, but that then you get carried on in your ancestry. You get carried on by your children. You get carried on in your memory, in your impact, all of those kinds of things. It sounds very familiar to a lot of us, doesn't it? It sounds very familiar in current modern thinking. And so they come to Jesus and they say this, all right, so knowing the law of Moses, see, they want to pin Jesus down with Moses' law. You notice this, right? They're going to show Jesus to be out of alignment with Moses because, man, in, 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 in Israel, if you're out of alignment with Moses, that's like, like you're out. You know what I'm saying? You're out. So they're going to show him being out of alignment with Moses. All right, so Moses says, Jesus, that if, 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 if my brother dies, if, if a brother dies, or if a man marries a wife and then he dies, he's to marry his brother. All right, so there's a situation. Man gets married to wife, he dies. So, honorable brother, man of God, man of the book of Moses, he takes his wife, he takes his wife, he marries her, he does what he's supposed to, but he dies too. And then, third brother steps up to the plate. Man of God, obviously, a great dad in the home, great mother in the home. Great, this was obviously a product of great mothering in this situation. And so, steps up to the plate, he marries her, but he dies too. Now, we just need to call time out right here. If I'm brother number four, I'm sniffing that oatmeal a little bit. You know what I mean? If I'm brother number four in this situation, I might have to call farmersonly.com or something. We're going to get you taken care of, but we're going to get you out of the family tree, right? But this goes all the way down to seven brothers. And so he says, all right, Jesus, according to your brilliant logic, according to your great thinking, this man's had seven wives. Or this, this woman's had seven husbands. When she comes into heaven in the afterlife and preparing for the resurrection, who's going to be her husband? Who's going to be her husband? See, last week they came to him with a political question, right? This week they're coming to him with a theological question. And you can tell they're trying to stir up controversy because what are the two most controversial subjects? Politics and religion, right? And they're coming to Jesus in the midst of a crowd asking him questions about politics and religion. Hey, Jesus, what you going to do? What you going to do? right? And so they're, they're saying, so we're going to do like WWE Battle Royale. We're going to solve this with the diamond cutter. Like how's this, how's this going to, how are you going to work this out, Jesus? And I love the way Matthew writes it. Because in my mind, this is the point where Mary really gets nervous, right? In my mind, if Mary is there and she's watching this, this is the point where mama gets nervous, They've laid the question out there, and it's a hard question, and it's a controversial question. It's the elephant in the room question, and baby boy, he is put on full display, and there's no backing out, and there's nowhere to go. And by the way, the only thing hanging on this question is everything, is everything. Now, Mary knows who Jesus is, and Mary has taught with Gabriel, and Mary has witnessed miraculous works in Jesus' life, but Mary's a human being. Mary's a human being. So, so you can imagine, she's nervous. And, and the way that Matthew says it, do you notice this? L look, at, look at the way Matthew, Matthew words this. He says in verse 29, 
but Jesus answered them. I like the fact that he puts, but Jesus answered them. It's, it's almost like nobody expected him to answer, isn't it? It's almost like nobody expected him to answer. Like, like everybody was there, and they're thinking, they got him this time. He's pinned down. The, the resurrection's the whole key to his whole deal. The kingdom of heaven, going to prepare a place for you. Like, that's his whole speech. That's his whole sermon. That's everything that he teaches. Coming into the kingdom. I'm inaugurating this thing. I, my kingdom's not of this world. It's of another world. I'm going to sit on the throne. All this stuff. But now they've got him. But Jesus answered them. But Jesus answered them. He doesn't stammer. He doesn't stutter. He's not caught off guard. He's not perplexed. He's not confused to the seemingly dismay of the crowd, to the seemingly dismay of his own disciple, Matthew. Jesus answers. Jesus answers. Jesus responds. And before Jesus answers the question directly, he diagnoses the reason that they don't have the answer. He diagnoses the very reason that they don't understand and the reason that they're missing everything. He says in verse uh, at the end of verse 29, he says, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. The word wrong there, you, it, it really means like, if you have a different translation, NIV, Holman Christian, I think, do you have those? It probably says you are deceived. You are deceived. That word wrong can mean deceived. You are deceived because you don't know the word of God. And you are deceived because you don't know the power of God. You can't see the truth, even though the truth is right in front of you, because you don't know the word of God, and you don't know the power of God. So Jesus cuts through all the noise. Jesus cuts through all the confusion. Jesus cuts through all of the games, all of the hypotheticals, all of the, the master of ceremony, all of that stuff. And he diagnoses the, the problem like a master diagnostician. Is that even a word? I think I just made that up. He says, you don't know. And the reason that you don't know is because you don't know the Bible, you don't know what God has said, and you don't know what God has done. You don't know what God has done. And the truth is, is that when we look at ourselves, and we have all of these opinions, and we have all of these thoughts, we say, well, I'll tell you what I think. And we have all of these, these anxieties, we have all of these unbeliefs, we have all of these areas in which, in which unbelief creeps in and all of these, these cracks in which we're struggling and which we're, we're battling. And I bet if we were to kind of get behind and peel the layers behind those opinions and peel the layers behind those fractures of unbelief, what we would see behind all of them is that we don't know the scriptures and we don't know the power of God. That we could take the Sadducees and we could take ourselves and we could lay them side by side and we could use them as a mirror very often that we could use them as a mirror very often. Now, it's important for us to understand that there's a difference between reading and knowing. So, so, so there's, there's, these two, there's this twofold response that, that Jesus gives, right? There's this twofold problem that the Sadducees have. The first problem is, is they don't know the scriptures. The second problem is, is that they, they, don't have, they don't know the power of God. And I think what he's doing over the rest of the course of what he says is kind of unpacking what he's just said. 
That's what I want us to do with the rest of the course of today. So, so first, let's look at this, that, that they don't know and we don't know, or they are deceived or they are wrong and we are deceived and we are wrong because we don't know the scriptures. They don't know the scriptures. And it's important for us to realize that when we talk about the scriptures and when we talk about the Sadducees, that there's a profound difference between reading and knowing. Reading and knowing. The Sadducees had read the Bible. They had read the scriptures. In fact, when we talk about those first five books of the Bible, we talk about the Torah, we talk about the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, we talk about those books, they probably had them memorized, or at least mostly memorized. So I think that if all of us were going to sit down and play like Bible trivia, none of us would want to get into that game. You know what I'm saying? Like they've read the Bible. They know their stuff. If we were to pass out Bible exams, I don't want to take one with them. I can promise you that. I don't want to compare my Bible knowledge to the knowledge of the Sadducees. It was a part of their daily schedule. It was a part of their daily discipline. It was a part of their, these these men were chief priests. The chief priests were Sadducees. It was a part of their teaching. They were teachers of God's law. They were experts of God's law. They were lawyers themselves. They had read God's law. And yet Jesus looks at them and he says, but you don't know God's law. And I wonder how many of us are the same way. That we've read God's law. We've read God's word. We've read the scriptures. We've read it perhaps in a year. We've read it maybe multiple times all the way through. Maybe we've even memorized large sections of it. But I wonder when we come to our opinions, when it comes to our lifestyle and it's not translating, when it comes to our worldview and it's not shaping the things that we do and the things that we think and the places that we go and the people that we are, I wonder if Jesus could come into us and say, you've read it, but you don't know it. You've memorized it, but you don't understand it. Because there's a difference between reading God's law and knowing God's law. How is it that the Sadducees could know could have read so much of God's law and not know God's scriptures? How is it that they could have read so much and know so little? They didn't know the God of the scriptures. They didn't know the God of the scriptures. Listen to me. This is not a science book. And this is not a history book. And this is not a math book. And this is not a literature book. I'm not saying this book has nothing to say to any of those things, but that's not what this is. This is a book about how you know God. About how you know God. About how God comes into this world and how you can live in relationship with Him and how you can live in glory with Him and about how you can walk and thrive as a person because you are attached like a, like a branch to a vine with Him. How you can be fruitful because you are in Him. How you can be joyful because you are in Him. Because you, how you can have hope because you are in Him. Let me tell you something. If you don't know God, you can't know the book. I don't care how much of it you've memorized. I don't care how much of it you've read. I don't care how much of it you can pass on a test. If you don't know God, you can't know the book. But what about us? What about us? Maybe you'd say, but but I know God. I know God, and, and I still I come to my Bible and I struggle. If I'm just honest with you, Cody, I, I come to my Bible and, it, and it's... And it's hard for me. See, I think we've got in our minds 
that we've got to get through three or four chapters in a day. We've got to do this. We've got to do that. We've got to... Do you know what your one object, your one goal when you come to the Bible is? If you, if you want to unlock the joy of Bible reading, if you want to unlock the glory of Bible reading, you want to unlock it, I'm going to give you the key. You got to go to your Bible and meet God there. You got to go to your Bible and meet God there. If you go and you just get new facts, if you go and you just get new mythologies, if you go and you just know some genealogy, if you go and you just if you just know a little bit more about Israel or a little bit more about the life of Jesus, it's just going to be dull. It's going to be dry. But man, oh man, oh man, if you meet God there, if you meet God there, it will become a treasure trove of, tre- of encouragement, a treasure trove of glory, a treasure trove of encouragement, a treasure trove of, 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 just, of, of challenges and boldness and courage that will propel you forward into your life that will keep you coming back again and again and again. Why? Not so that you can know more, but so that you can know God. I wonder, I wonder how different we would be if we didn't veg out on Netflix like the world, but we vegged out on the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's hard. Because let me tell you, you will not meet God on a consistent basis in your Bible reading if you put hard time backgrounds on each side. You put bookends on both sides. You've got to have unhurried time with God. Inefficient time with God. I told my D group, efficiency is the enemy of godliness. Man, you've got to just go and just linger in it for a while. I'm going to stay right here until God meets me here. Man, veg out on the word of God. Veg out on the word of God so that you're not like the Sadducees and you can know him. You can know the scriptures. He gives examples. He gives examples as to why he says what he says. That they don't know the scriptures. And that they're deceived because they don't know the scriptures. The first example that he gives is here in verse 30. He says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And I like, because here... Jesus honestly is rubbing it in a little bit, okay? Jesus is rubbing it in a little bit because in verse 30, Jesus brings up two things that the Sadducees don't believe in. And he says, here's your issue. Here's your issue. Here's your issue. He brings up the resurrection and angels. They don't believe in either, all right? And he says, here's your problem. See, the, the, the Sadducees were coming to the table with some presuppositions about heaven. See, in their minds, heaven was going to be just like earth. So you're going to go into heaven, in the economy of heaven, and marriage was going to be just like it was on earth. And so because they had all of these presuppositions about what heaven was going to be like, their logic was flawed. Their rationale was flawed. And it wasn't going to add up, and it wasn't going to work. And so all this huge elephant in the room problem that they had, this massive issue that they were taking, really wasn't an issue at all. And what Jesus is saying is that if you would have known, your, if you would have known the scriptures, 
If you would have known the law of Moses that you so, so vehemently love and claim, then you would have known that, the, that, 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 the, that heaven is not going to be anything like earth. What were the primary reasons that God performed a wedding in Genesis chapter 2, which, by the way, is like two chapters in, Sadducees, right? Like if we're just correcting them, we're two chapters in. What's the primary reason that God performs a wedding? Because man is lonely and the world is empty, right? Man is lonely and the world is empty. Can I tell you something about heaven? You're not going to be lonely there. You're not going to be lonely there. God's presence is there. God's presence is so thick in heaven. It says that the sun isn't there because his presence alone is strong enough, thick enough, dense enough to illuminate the entire landscape. Not only is God's presence going to be there, but God's people are going to be there. God's people are going to be there. And it's not going to be like it is here. We're going to be in perfect harmony all the time, loving one another perfectly. There's going to be friendship and joy in those friendships, relationships and joy in those relationships. There's not going to be emptiness. There's not going to be loneliness. There's not going to be nights by yourself. You're not going to wonder if anybody cares about you moment by moment, second by second, through all eternity, generation after generation, you are going to exist in perpetuity in the presence of God and in the presence of his church, and you are going to be perfectly at peace with all of it. See, maybe you read that and you're a little bit discouraged. If you're like me, I told you earlier, in our home, my wife's the hero. So I read this and I'm like, no, Jesus, don't say I'm not going to be married in heaven. Don't say that. I don't want to hear it. I don't like it. I'm not encouraged by it. Don't say stuff like that. But think of it this way. You know, I think in heaven, I'm going to love Megan better. In, in heaven, I'm going to love Megan more perfectly than I do right now. And in heaven, Megan is going to love me more perfectly than she does right now. So I'm not losing her love in heaven. And she's not losing my love in heaven. I'm not losing that relationship in heaven. I'm not losing that refuge in heaven. I'm not losing that friendship in heaven. I'm not losing that joy in heaven. But you know what? I'm not losing anything, but I'm gaining a whole lot. I'm gaining, you know why mine and my, Megan's relationship is so close? I can talk to her about anything. I, I, I can trust her with anything. I can go to her and I know that she's not gonna take harmful or take my weaknesses and weaponize it against me. I know that. But you know what? In heaven, everybody's going to be like that. Everybody's going to be like that. I'm going to be gaining relationships. I'm going to be gaining friendships within the people of God, within the bride of Christ, at the wedding supper of the Lamb. I'm not losing anything. I'm gaining a whole church. I'm gaining friends. I'm gaining the bride of Christ. So it's not discouraging, it's encouraging what Jesus is saying. The second thing that he says is it's, it's going to be empty, but church is not going to be empty. We just talked about it. Not only is the presence, the people of God, it, it, it's going to be populated. God himself is seeing to it. And if they would have known their Bibles, if they would have understood it, they would have seen. This doesn't hold up. This doesn't make sense because heaven's not going to be anything like earth. Heaven's not going to be anything like what we see here. 
Heaven's not going to be anything like what we experience here. The second example he gives is a textual one. The second example he gives is from the scriptures. And I like this one. This one seems to especially just kind of dumbfound them. I just like it when Jesus gets after his opponent and just kind of just sets them down for a second, right? He says in, uh, he says in verse 32, have you not, or in verse 31, he says, have you not read, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Do you hear what he's saying? This is subtle, y'all. Don't miss this. Jesus could have went to Isaiah 25. Jesus could have went to Daniel chapter 12. They say explicitly there is going to be a resurrection. Jesus doesn't go to those passages because the Sadducees don't uphold those passages. He goes right into the middle of Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, right in the heart of the book of Moses. If you remember, Exodus is where Moses comes onto the scene. Exodus 3 is where Moses gets his call by the burning bush. He goes right there. And you know what he says? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They've long passed away. They've long went to the other life. But guess what, Sadducees? Guess what? I'm still their God. Guess what? They're still alive. They haven't passed. My covenant with Abraham and with his descendants was bigger than the grave. My covenant with Abraham was transcendent. You think something like what the enemy can bring, like the death and the grave is going to stop my covenant? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of the living, not of the dead. And the Sadducees are astonished. Astonished. Brothers and sisters, can I tell you something? He is the God of the living, not of the dead. He is the God of the living, not of the dead. He is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, and of Jesus Christ. He is the God of Cody Hell, and Alan, and John, and Tony, and Sandra, and Kathy. He is our God. And what we see here is that if he is upheld through the generations, through eternity, past the grave, his covenant with Abraham, he will certainly uphold his covenant with us. He is not simply a covenant-making God. He is a covenant-keeping God. And the hope and the joy that that brings to us is every single thing that you have read about heaven, every single thing that you have read about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven in the scriptures will be upheld in a day of fulfillment for you when you pass out of this life and into the next life. So brothers and sisters, can I tell you something? Can I tell you something? Don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. All of this is hard. All of this is scary. All of this is worrisome. All of this is difficult. All of this is fading away. All of this is fading away. All of this is the fading away because he is the God of the living, not of the dead. And if you are truly in Christ and walking in Christ and knowing Christ, you are already counted among the living and you will live forever in glory because he has said it's so and he has proven it so, oh, church, and can I tell you, heaven ain't going to be nothing like earth. 
Heaven ain't going to be nothing like earth. It's not going to look anything like the headaches you get here, the pain that you face here. It's not going to be the emptiness that you face here, the loneliness that you know here. None of that's going to be here. The presence of God is there. The people of God are there. And it's in perfect harmony with one another. I wonder if you know it. I wonder if you know it. You see, if you veg out on Seinfeld in the office, you veg out on whatever Netflix and Hulu and the theater has, when your day of crisis come, when tears stream down your face, the treasury of your heart will be empty. And the bullets in your gun will be blanks. And you'll have nothing but cliches and platitudes to aim at this pain. But brothers and sisters, if you know the Scriptures, if you know the Scriptures, if you veg out in the Scriptures, it's not easy. It's a discipline. It's day in, day out. But man, if you just get lost and you meet with God in the Word, can I tell you, when the tears come and the pains come and the heartache comes, this will sustain you with abiding joy like a vine attached to, uh, like a branch attached to the vine. Brothers and sisters, know the Scriptures. Don't know pop culture. Don't know social media. Don't know everybody else's gossip. Know the Scriptures because this is going to put bullets in your gun to aim at your loneliness, your emptiness, your pain, all of your struggles. Oh, do you know it? Do you know it? If I were to come in to ask you about the hope of heaven, what do you know about heaven? If I were to come in to ask you about the promises of God, what do you know about the promises of God? Brothers and sisters, they will sustain you. They will give you life. They will give you hope. So he says, if you knew the scriptures, you wouldn't be deceived. If you knew God's power, you wouldn't be deceived. He went to Exodus chapter 3, didn't he? He went to Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush. This bush that's, that's literally right there, speaking with the mouth of God, yet not being consumed. You know what Exodus is? Exodus is the clearest example of the extent and the means to which God will go to preserve his people. So time and again, time and again, throughout Exodus, you read of great and miraculous demonstrations of God's power. You read about plagues of frogs and flies and locusts coming upon Pharaoh because they came against God's people. The Nile turns to blood. The angel of death visits upon them. And every house of Egypt knows the agony of the angel of death. But the house of Israel is passed over. They go out into the wilderness there, up against the Red Sea, the, uh, the most powerful military in all the earth, bearing down on them. And the seas part, and they walk across on dry ground, crashing down on the army behind them, pursuing them. Oh, God will deliver you. God will protect you. God is mighty to save. God is powerful to deliver. They get out of there. What are we going to drink? What are we going to eat? God, strikes Moses strike a rock. Water comes gushing out. Bread rains from heaven. Sends a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, guiding them to the very edge of his own promised land. He's looking to those Sadducees. 
He's saying, you may have read Moses. You may have read Moses, but you don't know the God of Moses. You may have read of your forefathers, but you don't know the God of your forefathers. Because if you knew the God of your forefathers and his might and his power and his perseverance and his deliverance, you'd have no trouble believing in the resurrection. If he can deliver from the oppression of Pharaoh by splitting an ocean, splitting a sea, do you really think it's that big a deal for him to call a dead man out of the grave? Brothers and sisters, do we know the power of God? Do we know the power of God? Not have we read about it, not have we heard of it. Do we know the power of God? Because God has given us frontier attacking power to walk into the wilderness of our world, to reach the nations for his glory, filled with his spirit, to have stories that no other man can take. Do we tell those stories? Do we have those stories? In the resurrection, we are those who will live forever as the child of the God of the living, not of the dead. We can live not worried about the opinions of man, but with a courage not found on this earth. How is it that our prayers sound so bored? Oh, brothers and sisters, are you living a courageous life? Are you living a bold life? Are you living a sacrificial life? Because can I tell you something? Can I tell you something? All this is fading away. A, king, a new kingdom is being ushered in. A time of fulfillment is coming. And heaven ain't going to be anything like earth. Let's pray together.